It's great to see you all here with us this morning. I want to just welcome each of you here today, those who are in person and those who are joining us online. We are so grateful for you joining us in worship this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we begin our worship time.
What I
be seated. Chaz got me good on that one. I, uh, I wasn't expecting that this morning, and I really uh, appreciate that very much. It's uh, truly a blessing to serve here at Lakes Free Church. Uh, I love our church so much. I love all of you, uh, and I'm so thankful for the privilege I have of serving as your pastor. You are a great, uh, great group of people uh, to be able to uh, shepherd and lead and uh, grow together in Christ, and I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I love you guys so much, and uh, so thankful to be here uh, today, and, and every Sunday, and, and in every other way throughout uh, your lives that I get to be a part of it, uh, it's such a blessing, and uh, I just want to thank you. I want to say hello to uh, not only those of you present with us this morning, but we have, uh, over the last few weeks, we've had hundreds of people uh, from our Lakes free, free family and even beyond watching us online, which has been really neat to see. And so uh, to those of you watching online this morning, let me just say hello to you. We're so glad that uh, you're able to join us. Uh, those of you watching online this morning uh, may have noticed uh, this was the first Sunday that we actually had our worship uh, broadcast online as well. And so they were able to join us at home in worship. We're projecting the, uh, the worship slides there for people so that they can uh, join in. And uh, we're grateful to be able to do that. And uh, we hope to continue to expand our uh, presence online and be able to minister to more and more people that way as well. We, uh, we heard this week here in the Chisago Lakes area that there was an increase in uh, the spread of uh, the COVID uh, situation. And so uh, if you heard the news, the, the local high school actually shut down for two weeks and went to full online learning uh, just as a precautionary measure. We here at Lakes Free, we've suspended our in-house 
uh, senior high ministries for the next two weeks as well, just to uh, uh, practice uh, an extra level of caution there. And uh, I know that, you know, many in our church are concerned about uh, the spread of the coronavirus and, and all of that, and we understand that. And I know many of you, I received lots of emails this week from people at home saying, Jason, we're just going to choose to worship at home for now. And uh, I just want to affirm you and bless you and let you know we love you and we support you in that. And we're just very thankful that as a church we can continue to provide these great uh, online resources for you so that you can still join us as part of our Lakes Free family because that's important to us. Uh, I also want to say to everybody here and online that starting next week, if, if you would like to worship with us in person but you're just a little bit more uh, concerned about the social distancing and the mask wearing and all of that, we are going to be opening up our youth center area next week, uh, having a live feed down there in the youth center uh, just to allow for extra spacing, extra room for people. So if that's something that's of a concern to you here or uh, those of you watching at home, you'd love to come and be with us in person but are, are just a little bit more concerned, just know we're going to be creating more opportunities for extra space here at the church uh, and we'd love to just, you know, one more way that we can help serve uh, the people of our uh, Lakes Free family and our community who would like to come and worship with us uh, because there are those that have uh, some heightened concerns about these things, and, and we respect that, and, uh, and we love them, and we want to serve them well. So uh, that's going to be happening here in the coming weeks uh, as well. Just wanted to remind all of you here this morning, as well as you watching at home with us, uh, you know, we're trying to refrain from uh, passing offering plates here, and we're taking communion differently here. A lot of differences in how we've historically done worship on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're grateful that we can continue to worship through song and worship through the teaching of the Word. Uh, one of the ways that God's people have historically worshipped Him is by our gifts and offerings to the Lord. And uh, here on Sunday mornings, we're not taking a, co uh, a collection like we used to historically. So I would just encourage all of us uh, to remember that uh, our responsibility to give to the Lord as an act of worship doesn't cease just because uh, we don't have ushers passing our collection bags here on Sunday morning. And so I would, uh, I would strongly encourage you uh, to join us in the blessing of giving to the Lord and to the mission that he's given us here, uh, his work here at Lakes Free, as well as the ministries that we support all around the world. Uh, Lakes Free Church supports 30 missionaries all across the globe, and, uh, and they're dependent on our faithful giving, just as the, the in-house ministries here at Lakes Free are dependent on that faithful giving. And so I'd encourage you, whether you use the collection boxes that we have in our foyer, whether you choose to give online, uh, we uh, have tried to make those opportunities as easy as possible uh, to do that. And so uh, as your pastor, I just want to continue to encourage you in that, in that discipline, the giving of uh, our gifts, the, God, the gifts that God has given us back to him in service of his mission here at Lakes Free Church. So thanks for your support in that. Well, friends, I'm going to open in a word of prayer as we continue on in our series this morning, looking at the Gospel of John. Have you enjoyed this series so far? Uh, man, I hope so. I, I know each week so far, God has really been speaking to me and encouraging me, and today's another one of those passages where there's so much for us to learn and be challenged by, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to have an opportunity to share this with you. So let's turn our hearts to the Lord right now. Let's ask Him to bless our study this morning, and, uh, and then we'll turn to John chapter 2. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being here together today. We thank you for the privilege of being your people 
as you said uh, through the Apostle John in John chapter 1, to all who believed in you, to those who received your name, you gave the right to be called children of God. And we thank you, Lord, for that privilege, the privilege of being called your children through our faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, today as we turn to John chapter 2 once again, and we continue to look at the Apostle John's uh, unfolding testimony of who you are, God, help us to come to understand you in deeper ways today. Help us come to know your will for our lives in in more significant ways. And, And mostly, Lord, we pray that you would give us a spirit of humility to receive your word and to put it into practice in our lives and, and, and today especially to examine our hearts and to see if there's anything within us that, that needs your cleansing touch, your purifying touch to form us and mold us more and more into your image. That's what we desire, Lord. And so we commit this time to you. We ask for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, friends, I had one of the most uh, unique ministry experiences of my life uh, the summer before coming here to Lakes Free 13 years ago, uh, actually 15 years ago now. Uh, it's very, uh, it was a very interesting experience. I was serving as uh, a pastor at a church in New Brighton, and uh, the summer before I came to Lakes Free, we had a family at our church in New Brighton that had recently come to the Lord through one of our outreach events. And I had been involved in, in discipling this family, helping them grow in their faith. And, and uh, they had become, you know, fairly good friends over the course of a few months of getting to know them. Well, one day they came to myself and, and they said, Jason, hey, we've got a dilemma. Uh, we've been asked to, to move out of our rental home and, and we need some help moving. Well, I said right away, sure, you know, I'd love to help you guys move. And, and so, uh, so I volunteered to, to come over a couple days later, and I asked my brother, who was our youth pastor there at the time, to, to join me, and we brought one of our college interns to come along with us. And, and the three of us went over in the church van, and, and we were going to help this family move. Well, right away when we set foot on their property, as their garage door opened, we discovered that we were in for a big, big chore that day. Uh, the reality was this family who we had just started getting to know, uh, they were hoarders. And, uh, and I kid you not, their garage, all we could see from the street in was packed from the floor to the ceiling with just trash. I mean, I mean it was stuff, but it was trash. And it was just jam-packed from bottom to top. And uh, we were just like, this is unbelievable. Well, we went to the front door, and uh, we step, stepped foot into the front door, and we quick, quick, quickly realized the inside of their house wasn't much different. And uh, this began about a week-long journey where, uh, where myself and my brother took literally dozens of trips, loading our church van, loading trailers, just full of garbage, taking this to a refuse facility down in St. Paul where, where they recycled some of it and just trashed most of it. But uh, it was absolutely incredible, totally overwhelming, one of the most unique ministry experiences I've, I've ever had. So just so you know, if you ever ask me to help you move and you sense a spirit of reluctance from me, uh, that, that spirit of reluctance is, is uh, well earned from past experience. So it was, a, it was an interesting time. I, I was reminded of that story this week because in our passage today, we are going to see Jesus in the process of cleaning house, 
cleaning the Lord's house, the, the temple in Israel. And, and it's an interesting passage because uh, in, in one sense, we can all relate to the reality of doing house cleaning. Uh, on this nice weekend we had, for example, I spent a lot of my day yesterday uh, doing yard work and cleaning up around my house, taking screens off and cleaning windows. And, and, uh, and so we all can appreciate the, the need for a good house cleaning on occasion. But, but in our passage this morning, the Apostle John is going to remind us of this truth by revealing for us an episode of, from Jesus' ministry where Jesus highlights for us the need for God's people to get their spiritual house in order. This was a, a need in Jesus' day, a need of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. And friends, this need is no different in our day and age. We too, at times, need to examine our lives. We need to examine our spiritual houses, if, we, if you will, and determine if there's a good house cleaning that's in order. And so that's what we're going to be looking at here together. This story from 2,000 years ago, Jesus cleaning house in Jerusalem in the temple, but then applying that to our lives and our circumstances as well today. We're in John chapter 2 today, verses 13 through 25. Jesus has just performed his first sign, the, the miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And now Jesus and his disciples have made their way down to Jerusalem. It's the Passover, the annual celebration of the Jews, when the Jews from around the world made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And during this time, the city of Jerusalem would swell with pilgrims to over two and a half million people packing the streets of Jerusalem, packing into the temple, going to celebrate Passover, that great celebration when the Jews were reminded of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so this is the scene that we find ourselves in today as we turn to verses 13 through 25 here in chapter 2. Let me read our passage for us this morning, and then I want to highlight some observations from our passage, observations and applications that, that we can take and apply in our own lives and circumstances. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was there in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This incredible story this scene of Jesus' visit to the temple in Jerusalem. 
It's a powerful scene as Jesus, along with these thousands and thousands of pilgrims, had, had flocked to Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration to, to, to visit the temple in Jerusalem. On the screen behind me, I've shown you a picture of the temple in Jerusalem just to give you a picture of the scale uh, of what Jesus and his disciples would have seen as they entered into the city of Jerusalem. This is actually a scale model of ancient Jerusalem that you can see and visit if you ever go to the land of Israel. And, And just here you see literally a half of the temple complex. What you see here on the left side is is matched on the right side. It was a massive massive facility, the temple where the Jews would worship God. You, you can see the size and scope of it compared to the homes and neighborhoods surrounding the temple. In fact, uh, the, the modern-day equivalency of, of the temple in Jesus' day is probably similar in size to many of our football stadiums uh, that we go to in, in support of college and professional football teams. I mean, this was a massive, massive facility. And I want you to envision as Jesus and his disciples walked into this temple complex, Thousands and thousands of people gathered there in the temple for the Passover celebration. That the large square that you see in the center of the picture on your screen is called the Court of the Gentiles. And this would have been the first area that Jesus walked into, the the area where Gentiles and Jews alike, people from all over the world, would come to worship the Lord. And, And here in the Court of the Gentiles, John tells us that as Jesus walked into the temple, he discovered those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. Uh, In other words, the Jews of Jesus' day had turned the temple into a bazaar, almost like a, a, a county fair, a farmer's market. And here in this bazaar, bazaar, Jesus encountered vendors who, who were selling sacrificial animals, which of course cost money. He, he discovered inspectors who were there who were, who were checking the animals that pilgrims had brought in to sacrifice because, because again, if you didn't have an unblemished sacrifice, you couldn't use it. And so they had inspectors there that would check all the animals. And of course, that too costs money. There were temple workers there, according to John, collecting the temple tax from every pilgrim. It, it cost money just to come into the temple. You had to pay a tax. And, and of course, that too costs money. And then John reports for us that there were money changers there who, who were exchanging the pilgrims' foreign currency for temple coinage. The Jews literally had their own special coins, and so pilgrims would have to change their money for the special temple money that was required to purchase a sacrifice or to pay the temple tax. And of course, this currency exchange also cost money, sometimes up to a day's wage, we're told from historical sources, in order to trade your personal currency for the temple currency. This was a huge bazaar that was taking place here in the court of the Gentiles. Like I said, the equivalent to a farmer's market, but thousands of people packed into this area during this period of the Passover. And all of this, friends, was going, under, going on under the oversight and authority of the high priest of Israel. A man by the name of Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, who, who were like joint high priests at this time. 
Historians tell us that Annas actually brought this bazaar into the temple complex. Prior to the days of Annas, all of the sales of these sacrificial animals took place outside of the temple, but Annas actually brought them into the temple and literally sold franchises to vendors to set up their booths where they could sell sacrificial animals or do the inspections or do the money changing. And, and so the high priest was, was making a ton of money off of all of this. Now, not only, not only was this a, a literal circus going on here in the temple, but this was big business. This was big business. Historians tell us that the temple in Israel at the time of Jesus held in its treasury in excess of over $20 million. $20 million from 2,000 years ago. The, the priests were lining their pockets while the people of Israel lived in poverty and oppression under the, the oversight of the Roman Empire. Most egregious of all here in this scene is that this bizarre bazaar was set up in, in, like I said earlier, the court of the Gentiles. Now, now this was incredibly significant, friends, because understand this. If you were a follower of God, but not a Jew, there was only one place in the temple where you were allowed to go and worship, where you were allowed to go and pray, and that was the court of the Gentiles, and so these Jewish pilgrims from around the world would come to worship, and the only place where they had access to God had been turned into a carnival, a, a county fair, animals running around, animal waste all over the place, vendors and, and sellers and money changers ripping people off. I mean, this whole thing had become a profanity in the eyes of God. They had profaned the glory of God. They had made a mockery of God's holiness by what they had done to the house of the Lord, to his temple. It's as Jesus tells us in Matthew, Matthew 15, verse 8. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this is what was going on with the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day. The people who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, they honored God externally with their lips and with their rituals, but inside their hearts were far from God. And we see this here in our passage, how, how they had perverted the true purpose of the Lord's temple. And it's no wonder, no wonder Jesus responded to this whole circus the way that he did. Here is the Lamb of God who comes to his temple and the Lamb suddenly turns into the Lion of Judah. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, exercising his righteous anger over the abuses and corruption that he sees. John tells us he forms a whip out of cords and begins to drive the money changers and the animals out of the temple. Friends, picture this scene. The court of the Gentiles, a, like, like a large farmer's market packed with thousands of people. And here is Jesus, like, like a wild man, driving people from this area. People running in all directions. Imagine sheep and cattle running running all over the place. I mean, it would have been a sight to see as Jesus began turning over the tables of the money changers. You know, we often don't think of this side of Jesus, do we? We, we often think of gentle and, and meek and compassionate Jesus. But friends, Jesus is also righteous. 
Jesus is also holy. Jesus also judges sin. And, and here in this scene, we, we see the totality of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is gracious, but he is also a God of truth. Yes, Jesus loves but he's also a God of justice, friends, and we need to see both of these sides of Jesus if we're going to understand the full picture of who our God is. Jesus was as much God in this scene as he was when he hung on the cross three years later laying down his life as the sacrifice for our sins. God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of truth. And he cannot tolerate sin. He's a holy God. And, and so Jesus coming into the temple, seeing the mockery that's been made of God's temple, Jesus exercises his righteous anger in defense of God's glory and in defense of God's will for the people of Israel. Sometimes people say, well, well isn't anger sinful, Jason? You know, doesn't, doesn't the Bible say, do not get angry, do not sin in your anger? And, and we need to understand that there is a kind of anger that is sinful, a, a, a kind of anger that is, is based on us feeling like we've been slighted or shortchanged or, 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 or not treated fairly, and so we respond in anger. But there's a righteous anger that's not sinful, there's a righteous anger that looks at the things of this world that go against the will of God. And, and respond in like with God in a righteous, holy anger against the abuses of God's will. And so, friends, when, when God's people, for example, get angry over things that we see going on in our world that break the heart of God, when, when God's people get angry, for example, over the, the travesty of abortion in America, when, when God's people get angry over racism and, and abuse and injustice of people based on the color of their skin, when people get angry over the reality of poverty and hunger around the world, people going without because of oppression or because of greed, when we get angry over those things, that is not sin. That is us aligning our hearts with God's heart. And when God, God's heart breaks over these things, our hearts should break over these things, and we too can respond in a righteous anger. It's also important to remember, friends, that when Jesus was driving these people out of the temple and driving these animals out of the temple, Jesus did not harm anyone. Jesus didn't hurt anyone physically. He didn't hurt any of these animals that he was driving out physically. He didn't destroy anyone's personal property in this scene. How do we know that? Well, we know that because throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees are regularly accusing Jesus of things, trying to get him arrested and, and, and to get him off the scene. And the one thing that the Pharisees never accused Jesus of is, hey, by the way, remember Jesus when you whipped John in the temple the other day? When you whipped Joel and turned over his money table? They never accused Jesus of harming anybody physically. And so whatever Jesus did in cleaning out this temple did not involve physical harm or, or damage of anyone's personal property. These were never accusations against Jesus. But Jesus in his righteous holiness, his judgment, cleared house. And friends, when we think about how this story applies to us today, what is, what is Jesus driving out the money changers in this corruption in the temple? What, what does this have to do with us today? 
I think we need to view this scene as a word of caution, a word of caution for our lives. I I think we need to ask the same question that that Jesus probably asked as he looked at the perversion going on in the temple 2,000 years ago. I think we need to ask, is our worship honoring to God? The, the way that we worship the Lord, not only on Sunday mornings, but throughout our daily lives, are, are we honoring God? Or, or are we profaning God's glory in the way we live and, and the way we act and the way we speak? Are we like the Jews of Jesus' day who, who honor God with our lips, yet our hearts are far from him? And as we think about that reality, friends, Maybe we have some spiritual house cleaning to do in our own lives. Maybe Jesus would look at each of us this morning and and say, you know what, Olin, there's some things I I need you to clean up. Peggy, there's some things I, I need you to clean up. Jason, there's certainly some things I need you to clean up. I think this passage calls us to examine our own hearts, our own worship. But let's also not miss the ultimate significance of what Jesus did here in this scene. See, the true sacrificial Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who who came to take away the sins of the world, this sacrificial Lamb, the Lamb who was also a lion, the Lion of Judah, chased out the inadequate sacrificial animals from the temple. The Lamb of God chases out the oxen and the cattle and the sheep and the doves and pigeons. He chases them all out. Why? Because he alone Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the one true and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. As Hebrews 9, verse 12 tells us, Jesus entered once for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, Jesus didn't provide a sacrifice for us based on on temporary animal sacrifices. Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute, the once-for-all sacrificial lamb of God. And, And this leads me to point number two this morning. Jesus' temple visit reveals that he came to open the door to life in his house. He came to open the door to life in his house. In verses 18 through 22, our our passage continues. And in verse 18, the Jews say to Jesus, after he's cleansed the temple, after he's driven everybody out, the, the Jewish authorities come to him and they say, Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jews demanded a sign from Jesus. In other words, who do you think you are? But by what authority do you do this, Jesus? Show us a sign. I mean, if you're a man of power, if you're a prophet of God, show us a miraculous sign so that we can know this is truly an act of God and not just the work of some crazy madman. Show us a sign, Jesus. What's your authority? And the Jews here, they demand a sign from Jesus. But friends, understand this. They should have recognized the sign and the very actions and person they were questioning. They should have recognized the sign standing right in front of them. For God himself had prophesied to the Jews. 
in some of the very last words in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, God had told the Jews very clearly, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refined fire, like a fuller soap, like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of civil, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. The prophet Malachi, literally the last book of the Old Testament, God had told the people of Israel that the Lord was coming in judgment. He was coming as a refiner. He was coming as a launderer's soap to cleanse and to purify. Where was he coming to? To his temple, Malachi says. They should have known this was coming. And why was this refining needed? Why was this purification needed? It's because, as we saw earlier, the Jews of Jesus' day had perverted true religion. They had corrupted true worship. They had lost sight of what God truly desires for men and women. What does God truly desire, friends? He desires hearts that are humble, hearts that seek true righteousness before him. But of course, if we're honest about it, none of us can ever attain true righteousness on our own, can we? None of us can ever live truly righteous by our own good deeds, by our own works, by our own merit. That's our problem. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous. No, not one, Paul says. There's no one righteous here today. And Paul goes on in Romans 3, 23, he says, not only is there no one righteous, but he tells us that all of us have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Because God is holy. He is majestic in righteousness. He is pure in morality. And every single one of us here have fallen short of God's righteous, holy standards. And this is exactly why Jesus came. To open for us the door to life with God. Paul tells us in Romans 3, 23 through 25 that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, but we are also all justified by his grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a substitutionary sacrifice. That's what that word propitiation means. A propitiation by his blood, the spotless lamb of God, the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. When we put our faith in Jesus and his sacrifice, his perfect righteous blood makes propitiation for us. It's a perfect substitute for us to bring us back into the presence of a holy God. And this is the meaning, friends, of of what Jesus responds here in verses 19 and and John's commentary about Jesus' response in verse 20 through 22. After the Jews demand a sign from Jesus, look, look how Jesus responds in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Jews asked for a sign, and Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And speaking of himself, now the Jews didn't get this. They they thought he was talking about the physical temple they were standing in. But Jesus says, no, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And so understand what Jesus is saying here, friends. Jesus is saying, he is the sign. Jesus is saying, you want a sign? Look to me, I'm the sign. In Jesus, we see the true temple where people find access to God. Remember what John said in his prologue, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Remember, we talked about that word in the Greek. Dwelling is literally a tabernacle, a tent. God came and set up shop among us. He set up his tabernacle among us in the person of Jesus. And now Jesus, standing in the midst of the physical temple, says to the Jews of Israel, destroy this temple the true temple, the tabernacle of God in the flesh. And in three days, I will raise it up again. You want a sign, look to me. Not only that, in this statement, Jesus is saying that he too is also the true Passover sacrifice. Destroy this temple. Sacrifice this temple. Jesus, again, is is echoing these great themes of of not only him being the temple of God in their midst, but also the Passover sacrifice in their midst, the perfect sacrifice by which people can find access and forgiveness and a relationship with God. And Jesus would ultimately go on to prove all of this by his death and resurrection from the grave. I want you to imagine John writing these words later in life, 95 AD. He's an old man, and and he's thinking back on the life and ministry of Jesus. And and he comes to the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. And and he writes about this scene where where Jesus says to the Jewish religious leaders, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. And John here in verse 22 adds this little commentary. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. I can just see John as an old man thinking back. We had no clue. We were just as confused as they were when he said this. But then they killed Jesus, and he rose from the grave. And we know now what he meant when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He was the temple. He was the perfect sacrifice. He proved it all by rising from the grave. I mean, I can just imagine John, you know, his, his, his helpers there like, hey, old man, hold on here. You're getting too riled up. He's so excited as he's thinking about what Jesus did and who he was. Friends, all of Christianity hangs upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John the Apostle knew it. The other disciples knew it. The early followers of Jesus knew it. The Apostle Paul knew it. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, the Apostle Paul tells us, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Friends, everything Jesus said, everything he did, all of his claims to deity, all rest upon the foundation of his resurrection from the grave. And John believed it. 
because he had seen it with his own eyes. The early church believed it because they had seen it with their own eyes. There's tremendous evidence, friends, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you, if you're interested in looking at some of that evidence, to go back to the the last two or three years of our Easter Sunday sermons here at Lakes Free. I've shared much of that great evidence for the resurrection, the historical evidence for the empty tomb, the historical testimony of over 500 eyewitnesses who testified to the risen Jesus, the, the testimony of radically changed lives that are unexplainable apart from the resurrection, the, the reality, the historical reality of the early Christian church that spread like a wildfire in the midst of a hostile Jewish culture occupied by the hostile Roman Empire. I mean, there was no reason for this early church to grow, and yet it spread like a wildfire. Why? Because Jesus truly did rise from the grave. When we think about the significance for our day and age, we look at the way the world has historically looked at the church, God's people. Friends, do you you wonder why the world constantly rages against the people of God? Why, no matter where you go across the globe, Christians face persecution, whether overt or, or subtle? The church is persecuted historically throughout the world. Why? It's because we serve a different king. We serve a risen king. We don't bow to the lords and kings and presidents and authorities of this world. We bow to a living, reigning Savior and Lord who rules and reigns. And and our world, friends, they can tolerate dead gurus. And they can tolerate deceased prophets. And they can tolerate long-gone teachers of wisdom. But what our world cannot tolerate is a living, reigning, sovereign king who we owe our ultimate allegiance to, who requires strict and full obedience from his people. The world doesn't want that kind of a king. But that kind of king rules and reigns today because he rose from the grave and he rules victoriously from his throne in heaven. And one day, the Lamb of God, who is the Lion of Judah, is going to return. And he will return in judgment against the sin and evil and wickedness of this world. And friends, if you have not invited Jesus into your life through the access to God that he has opened up, the door to his house that he has opened up, you will face God's judgment. You will face his wrath. Don't miss the significance, friends, of where Jesus was standing in the temple as he made this bold declaration. He's not in the most holy place. He's not in the courtyard of the priests. He's not in the court of Israel. Where was Jesus when he said all this? He was in the court of the Gentiles. The spot in the temple where anyone in the world could come and worship God. And so when the Jews asked Jesus for a sign, here he is declaring that life in his house, God's true temple, it's not about ethnicity or religion. It's about a right relationship with God through him a relationship that's available to every single person in this world. As we're going to see in two weeks when we look at John chapter 3, John 3.16, God says that he so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, Jesus has opened the door to life in his house. Let me ask you this morning, have you walked through that door? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Now, thirdly, this morning, Jesus' temple visit 
reveals to us that Jesus came, thirdly, to take up residence in our house. Jesus wants to take up residence in our house. Verses 23 through 25, let me read these again for us real quick. Jesus, John goes on and he says after this scene took place, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus during this Passover season was apparently performing other signs, other miracles. And many of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, John tells us, believed in Jesus. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. One commentator I read this week calls these two verses the scariest verses in the Bible. Why? Well, to fully appreciate what the Apostle John is conveying here, friends, we need to understand what he's saying in the original Greek. See, John here uses a play on words to make a very important point. The, the key word here in this section of our passage is the word pistuo. It's the Greek word for believe. And we see this word come up twice here in these last two verses. Once in verse 23, where we read that the people believed in Jesus. But in verse 24, we see the same Greek word, pistuo, when it says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That same Greek root word is used in both verses. In verse 23, the people's belief, epistusen, and in verse 24, Jesus' lack of entrusting himself, epistuen. Do you see the same root word there, pistuo, in both of those words? And friends, in the original Greek, this literally reads, the people believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Friends, did you know that it is possible to believe in Jesus and yet not have Jesus believe in you? Scariest verses in the whole Bible. In other words, some people have a belief that is not the kind of belief that obtains true fellowship with Jesus. Why is that? Some people believe in Jesus' friends only for the sake of what they can get from him. They believe in Jesus as long as he answers their prayers and does the miracles and provides them with the goodies they desire. He, he's like the big vending machine in the sky. And, and so their belief is based on what they can get. Uh, other people believe in Jesus. They, they believe that he is great even, but not great enough. Muslims believe that Jesus is great. He was a great prophet. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is great. He was the first creation of God. Liberal Christians believe that Jesus is great. He was a great social justice revolutionary, a great teacher of morality. They believe in a great Jesus, but he's not great enough. He's not the eternal word. He's not the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's not the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They have a great view of Jesus, but they don't understand his true greatness. Other people believe in Jesus intellectually, but they're not willing to submit their hearts to him obediently. How sad, friends, when people believe in Jesus but miss out on true fellowship with him. What is genuine saving belief in Jesus look like? The kind of belief that leads to true fellowship with Jesus Christ. 
Jesus tells us what this kind of saving belief looks like. In John chapter 14 and and verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He goes on in verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In verse 23, Jesus goes on, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Friends, are you getting the picture here? True belief, the kind of belief that leads to fellowship with God is a belief that manifests itself in love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, some people might mistakenly look at this and and think, well, Jason, this sounds a lot like a salvation that's based on works, on on what we do. You know, if I just love God enough or if I'm obedient enough, then, then I'm truly saved. And understand, friends, that's not at all the case. See, see, the Bible tells us in other places, like, like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for example, the Apostle Paul says that it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It is a gift. Salvation is a free gift given to us by God through Jesus that we receive by faith. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is Paul saying? We are saved by grace. It is a gift received through faith. And what does this gift usher us into? A life of faithfulness. A life of works and obedience to our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's what true saving faith looks like. True belief, genuine belief will manifest itself in love and obedience and good works because a life with Christ at the center will not have it any other way. One of the classic works of Christian discipleship written in the 20th century was a short little book written by a pastor named Robert Boyd Munger called My Heart, Christ's Home. You can look this up online. I know there are uh, editions of it you can read for free online. I would strongly encourage you to check this book out. It's a great example of how Christ wants to come and take up residence in our house. It's a metaphorical story about a man who invites Jesus to come and and live in the house of his heart, in in his home, his, 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 his internal home, his heart. And he invites Jesus to come in, and as Jesus comes in, Jesus begins making his way through this man's life. He goes to the study of this man's mind and he begins to clean out all the books and magazines and and all the literature that that aren't pleasing to the Lord. And and then he goes down the hall and he walks into the dining room of this man's appetites and he begins to, to clean out this man's impure appetites, the things of this world that this man regularly goes to and desires. And then he goes down to the workroom of the man's life and he begins to examine the man's service and all that he's done on behalf of the Lord and and begins to encourage him to to use his gifts and talents and abilities to serve God. He goes into the rec room of this man's heart and and he begins to purify all of the things that this man has gone to historically for entertainment and and joy. And, And then he turns to the closet of this man's life, the closet where he keeps his secret hidden things. And he cleans out the, the stench in this closet where the secrets are hidden. And at the end of the story, the man discovers that Jesus has begun to increasingly take up residence, but 
there's one thing that he has not done. He still hasn't signed over the title of his home to the Lord. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, I surrender it all. I give you the title, Jesus. This is your home now. My heart is your home. I want you to live here. I want you to control it. I want you to be the authority of it. It's a great picture, friends, of what God desires for each of us. A life that is truly humbled before him. A life that's walking in obedience with him. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 encourages us to test ourselves. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What is the test? The test is, am I walking in faith, in obedience, in love? Am I increasingly giving over those things in my life to the Lord that do not please him? Am I humbling myself before him? Am I sacrificing the stuff of this world to honor him? Is he truly the Lord of my home? That's the test. And friends, this morning, if we consider our own lives and we begin to think, you know, I haven't fully given up residence in my home to Jesus, what do we do? Well, the good news is grace is available through Jesus. In 1 John 1, 9 John the Apostle who wrote this gospel also tells us because he knew Jesus as good as anybody. John says if we confess our sins that he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You know, friends, Jesus wants to take up residence in your heart today. If you're reserving rooms for yourself, he won't have that. He'll, con- he'll can come in and he'll confront that. He'll clean house. He'll convict you of that because he wants to be the full owner. And if you realize today that you're holding back from the Lord, confess those sins, turn to Jesus, and experience his grace once again. And he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and you too can give him your heart, and he will make it his home. Let me close in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this powerful passage and the challenging truths it conveys to us, Lord, about what you desire for each of us in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, we pray that our worship would be honoring to you. We pray that our lives would be glorifying to you. We pray, God, that we would not live in such a way that would profane your glory or diminish our testimony of the greatness of the God that we serve but that we would walk in faith, in obedience, in humility, trusting in the righteousness that that you've purchased for us through your sacrificial death, walking in joy and freedom and love, which which abounds and overflows in ongoing desire to live in obedience and in faithfulness to you, Lord. Help us to examine our hearts this morning, and if there's any house cleaning in order, Lord, may, may we turn to you by faith, in repentance, and ask for you to come and and to continue to do that cleansing work in our lives so that you might be the sole owner, the sole authority, that our hearts might be your home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. And again, our ushers will dismiss you after the benediction. So if you would, please remain standing or seated where you are. I leave you with these great words from the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And now, friends, grow 
in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. God bless you, friends, and have a great week. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.